Turn to Jeremiah 17. As we continue our study of the book of Jeremiah, especially in chapter 17, since we started a couple of weeks ago, in the first 13 verses, we're going to begin and pick up in verse 14. Study down to the end of the chapter. Let's read uh, verses 14 through 18 and then pray and then get into our study this evening. Jeremiah 17, verse 14. Heal me, O Lord, and I shall be healed. Save me, and I shall be saved, for you are my praise. Indeed, they say to me, where is the word of the Lord? Let it come now. As for me, I have not hurried away from being a shepherd who follows you, nor have I desired the woeful day. You know what came out of my lips. It was right there before you. Do not be a terror to me. You are my hope in the day of doom. Let them be ashamed to persecute me, but do not let me be put to shame. Let them be dismayed, but do not let me be dismayed. Bring on them the day of doom and destroy them with double destruction. Shall we pray? Father, we thank you so much for the privilege of opening our Bibles freely to read and to study your word this evening. To pray, Father, that you will pour out your spirit upon us so that we may understand fully and completely, Lord, what you have prepared for our hearts to receive. I pray, Father, that uh, certainly, Lord, you will be the very focus of our attention and your word and the life of your word as it reaches our hearts and our minds. Let our eyes be focused, let our ears be ready hearers, let our hearts be ready receptacles. We pray this evening for our sister Olga, who will be in surgery tomorrow. May you comfort her now as she rests, that we may you heal her, Lord, even now. May you give, Lord, those doctors who will be performing the surgery, the wisdom and understanding that they need. Bring comfort to her and to her sons and all her friends and brothers and sisters in Christ who are by by her right now. We thank you that she's in, in good condition, but mostly because she's in your hands. We thank you for uh, having uh, brought uh, Pastor James through his this weekend. We thank you that he's now well and recovering, and we continue to pray for, for his full and complete recovery. We ask, Lord, now for you to manifest yourself through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Please consider 
these questions that I have for you this evening in light of the days and the times in which we live. First of all, let me ask this question. What qualities of character, what qualities of character will we exhibit in the midst of an evil and wicked generation as we look for and await the Messiah's return to this earth? Again, listen to the caref- to carefully to the question. What qualities of character will we exhibit in the midst of an evil and wicked generation as we look for and await the Messiah's return to this earth? And then secondly, what qualities of character will we possess? Now notice the difference in the questions. What qualities will we exhibit? What qualities will we possess in the presence of the enemies of our faith and of our Lord and Christ. Now the suggested answers to these questions may be found in the first few passages of our text today, the passages that we just read. But before we prepare to answer those questions, let's, let's summarize a little bit where we've been in the first part of this chapter, chapter 17. Warren Wiersbe shared a story about U.S. President Calvin Coolidge. I don't think any of us were around when Coolidge was president, so you'll have to go back to the history books to remember him. But he shares a story about U.S. President Calvin Coolidge, who, after coming home from church one Sunday, was asked by his wife, what did the preacher preach about? Sin, the president said in his usual concise manner. Well, what did he say about it? Mrs. Coolidge further inquired, and the president replied, he was against it. (laughs) Yep, the preacher was against sin. But we all need to be against sin, don't we? The fact of the matter is that Jeremiah was certainly against the sins of his people. And at the very outset of this chapter, he mentions a few of those sins. We covered this the last time we were in this chapter. First of all, he dealt with the issue of idolatry. We've been dealing with that throughout the whole of the book of of Jeremiah. But he comes again and he he mentions the idolatry of the people to them. In verses 1 through 4, and then in verses 5 through 10, he speaks to them of their unbelief. Their unbelief. And then he mentions their greed in, in verse 11. And then he says to them that they have forsaken the Lord in verses 12 and 13. They have forsaken the fountain of living waters. They have forsaken the very one who could provide for them that which will quench their thirst for righteousness. As we arrive at our Texas Uh, The text for this evening, and the remainder of this chapter, the prophet continues to point out Judah's sins. Judah, of course, being the southern kingdom of Israel. But he does so now in the midst of a prayerful cry to the Lord for deliverance from his enemies. It's Jeremiah's cry, and it's a cry from his heart to God. And he says, heal me, O Lord. And I shall be healed. 
What an interesting thing that Jeremiah is, is saying to the Lord, Heal me, O Lord. We sometimes get into our minds that anytime we see the word heal or healing or healed or anything to do with healing, that, that it having, it's having to do with the body. But we have to understand that he is speaking about his very heart and his very soul. And he says, Heal me, O Lord, and I shall be healed. Save me, and I shall be saved. For you are my praise. Indeed, they say to me, and this is the mockery of the people toward the prophet of God. They say to me, where is the word of the Lord? Let it come now. If, if it's indeed happening, let it happen now, this very minute. As for me, I've not, ter- I'm not hurried away from being a shepherd who follows you. Nor have I desired the woeful day. In other words, I'm not desiring the day of the Lord because I know what the day of the Lord is about. And I know what it's like. You know what came out of my lips, it was right there before you. Lord, you've heard my prayers. Do not be a terror to me, you are my hope in the day of doom. Let, me not, let, let them be ashamed to persecute me. That, of course, being his own people. But do not let me be put to shame. Have you ever considered that to be your prayer sometimes? Lord, let me not be ashamed. Let not my enemies triumph over me. Have you ever prayed that? I think we ought to pray that all the time. Let me not be ashamed. Let not thine enemies triumph over me. Let not my enemies triumph over me. Let them be dismayed. But do not let me be dismayed. Bring on them the day of doom and destroy them with double destruction. You might think that he's being hard on his people. In essence, he's just confirming what God's already told him is going to have to happen to his people because they have been disobedient. They have been mocking not only God's prophet, but God's word and God himself. Now, this is where the questions dealing with the qualities of our character come into play. Because there is no doubt that Jeremiah is surrounded, he is enclosed and enveloped and contained by ungodly people. Does that sound familiar to you? How similar this is to our daily predicaments. We are surrounded by a world of wickedness. A world of evil. It makes no sense to me. You see how some people can be blinded today into thinking that there is no evil on this earth. There really is no sin. The sad part about that thought is that there are some Christians today who are saying, well, you know, we're already living in the millennium. Can we truly be living in the millennium? What is the millennium? The thousand year reign of Christ. Where? From his earthly throne in Jerusalem for a thousand years. Well, I've been to Jerusalem. I haven't seen the Lord on his throne yet. But I do believe he's going to be there. Because he said he would. But the time's not yet. Jeremiah is surrounded by ungodly people. And the fact of the matter is it's it's his own people. But what are distinct and distinctive about the prophet Jeremiah are the exhibited qualities of godliness. Let's come to an understanding of what godliness is here, at least in, in, in the life of Jeremiah and in how his life is 
demonstrating that and defining that for us, at least in this particular case. We are seeing the qualities of godliness in the character and life of Jeremiah. The first one is that the Lord was his praise, verse 14. If you're taking notes, write that down. The Lord is his praise. One who walks godly with the Lord allows him and lets him be the Lord of his praise. In other words, God is the focus of his praise. God is the focus of his worship. God is the focus of his attention, you see. That is what it means when he says that the Lord was his praise. And those who walk godly with the Lord will always praise him in every circumstance, in every trial. Through every rut, through every valley through every tribulation and even in the heights of our praises and our victories God is always our praise you know this idea of the Lord being his praise goes back to Deuteronomy chapter 10 verses 20 and 21 and look carefully at what it says in Deuteronomy 10 verses 20 and 21 you shall fear the Lord your God a godly person fears the Lord Above all else, you shall fear the Lord your God, you shall serve Him. A godly person serves the Lord, and to Him you shall hold fast. A godly person is not going to hold fast to things on this earth, to people on this earth, but they're going to hold fast to Him and take oaths in His name. But notice verse 21 He is your praise. He is your praise and He is your God who has done for you these great and awesome things which your eyes have seen. When God does great and awesome things, I tell you this, whether He does them through people, through ministries, or however, God is to get the praise. God is to be the focus of our praise. He is our praise. You see, a good question, you know, it's, it's one of those good um, trick questions. When do we worship God? The answer isn't 5.30, and 11, or 7. In other words, Saturday, 5.30, Sunday's at 9 and 11. Wednesdays to seven. When do we worship the Lord? From the moment that we take a breath. The moment that our eyes are open. The moment that we begin to breathe again as we awaken from the rising of the sun to the going down of the same. So shall the Lord be praised. Secondly, Jeremiah followed the Lord with the humble heart of a shepherd. Verse 16 again. As for me, I have not hurried away from being a shepherd who follows you. In other words, I'm not a hireling. I'm not one that, that only comes and then when trouble, you know, I'll only follow until trouble comes. And then when trouble comes, I, I take off to hide. I haven't hidden, Lord. I have followed you with a humble heart of a shepherd. 
Psalm 63 verse 8 says, My soul follows close behind you. Your right hand upholds me. I like that, but I like the King James Version a lot better. Because it says in Psalm 63 verse 8, My soul followeth hard after thee. Thy right hand upholdeth me. My soul followeth hard. My soul follows hard after God. In other words, I'm, I'm not going to be distracted by things to the left or to the right of my life. I'm going to follow the Lord no matter where He takes me. And as long as I keep my eyes on Him, it doesn't matter what's, what's below my feet. You remember Peter on the water, on the Galilee, in the storm. You remember the Lord? You remember? The Lord, the Lord is, is, is out on the sea during a storm. And he calls to the boat where the, where the disciples were. And he says, hey, you guys, come over here. And everyone was afraid. And I've got to tell you, I'm sure Peter was afraid too. But Peter did something that the others didn't. He got out of the boat and he started walking to Jesus. As long as he kept his eyes on Jesus, he was above the storm. His soul followed hard after the Lord. Yes, he was human. He took his eyes off and he started looking at the waves and he started sinking. But the Lord rescued him because Peter said, save me, Lord. And he did. But he followed hard after the Lord. My soul follows hard after thee. Thirdly, Jeremiah was a man who laid bare his prayers before the Lord who searched his heart. He laid his heart bare before the Lord in prayer. Again, it says there in, uh, in verse 16, You know what came out of my lips. It was right there before you. He didn't hold anything back before the Lord. Why? Because he knew the Lord knew everything about him. He knew every, every prayer before it was even prayed. He knew every trouble before it was even mentioned. He knew, he knew uh, Jeremiah's struggle before he even uh, came out of his mouth. Before he could even verbalize things, God knew. But it's a godly person who will not keep anything back from God. Psalms 139. Psalm 139, verses 23 and 24. The very end of that wonderful psalm. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxieties or my thoughts. And see if there is any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. A godly person will lay his heart bare before the Lord because he knows the Lord will search his heart, examine his heart. You know, Paul tells us that we're to examine ourselves to see that we're in the faith. But in essence, we are to, to lay our hearts before God that He examines them with the light of His truth. That's why the Word of God is a mirror to us. It's a mirror to our souls. The Word of God is not what some people do with it today. They pick and choose what they want to believe and what they want to know. And what they don't want to know, they kind of keep for some other time. Every part of God's Word from Genesis to Revelation is to be seen as God's mirror to our souls and to our spirits and to our hearts. And then Jeremiah's hope was in the Lord and he trusted in God's deliverance. That's verses 17 and 18. Do not be a terror to me, you my hope in the day of doom. 
Let them be ashamed to persecute me, but don't let me be put to shame. Let them be dismayed, but do not let me be dismayed. Bring on them the day of doom and destroy them with double destruction. His hope was in the Lord, and he trusted God and in God's deliverance. I think we need to do that more and more in our lives today. We need to trust God and his deliverance in our lives from things and places and people where we find ourselves sometimes where we need to be delivered from. We need to trust God's deliverance. You see, after all of this takes place in the book of Jeremiah, there's another book that Jeremiah writes. It's a little five-chapter book right after Jeremiah that's called the Book of Lamentations. And in chapter 3, in the very middle of that book, and of course we are going to study it when we get there one of these years, or days, I mean, or months. But when we get there, we're going to look there at chapter 3 and we're going to see something that, that, that Jeremiah writes in the midst of the destruction that he sees in Jerusalem because of what did happen that he told the people would happen and they didn't listen. The destruction of Jerusalem. And in the midst of that destruction, with the woes that he cries out to God with, he says through the Lord's mercies, we're not consumed. Because his compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore I hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him. To the soul who seeks him. It is good that one should hope and wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. To have hope and trust in the Lord's deliverance is right here in Jeremiah's heart when all he sees is destruction. When all he sees is devastation. Can you hope and trust in the Lord when all you see is, is hurt, pain, tragedy, devastation? I pray that these qualities of character, of godly character, be ours as we see Christ's day approaching. As we see the day of Jesus coming so near. And folks, I, I tell you this with a sincere heart. that The more I look at the news, the more I read and, and, and see what's going on in this world and see what's happening in our own country and what's happening in the world in general, globally as it were. I tell you this, Jesus said it would be this way before he returns. And you just got to be either completely blind to it or you've got your head in the proverbial sand and not caring to think that it's going to happen. It's, you know, there, there's a world out there that is in complete denial to what Jesus ever said. They'd like to teach the world to sing in perfect harmony. That's from the old Coca-Cola song. They'd like to get us all together and hold hands and sing, We Are the World. But there is no peace until the Prince of Peace comes. I may sound like a broken record or CD or iPod. I used to say broken record. What's a record now? Go to the museum. 
I may sound like a broken record, but folks, Jesus is coming. And we need to be ready. Getting back to verse 14 for just a moment. It's interesting that Jeremiah prays for healing. Because we can look back at chapter 15, if you will, go back a couple of pages in your Bibles to chapter 15 and verse 18 when he spoke of his pain that refused healing. Think about this. Look at, how, look, look at where he was in chapter 15. He said, why is my pain perpetual and my wound incurable? That's his perspective. Isn't that our perspective sometimes? Nobody can heal this pain. Nobody can take this pain away from me. I don't even think that God can take it. But listen. He said, why is my pain perpetual and my wound incurable, which, refu- which refuses to be healed? Will you surely be to me like an unreliable stream as waters that fail? Those were the doubts of Jeremiah. Those were the struggles of Jeremiah. If, if we can say so, it was the sin of Jeremiah. We all have sinned and we've all fallen short of the glory of God simply because we haven't trusted that God can heal every pain of our heart. But Jeremiah realizes in chapter 17 that he can say to the Lord, Lord, heal me and I'll be healed. Remember that centurion who came to Jesus? Lord, I'm not worthy to let you come to my home, but just say the word. Just say the word. My servant shall be healed. Just say the word. If that's not faith, I don't know what is. As a matter of fact, Jesus exhibited it as faith. Great faith. How many times did Jesus have to say to his own disciples, O ye of little faith. O ye of little faith. You see, with Jeremiah, just as it was with Paul and with Peter and with all the disciples, there is a profound humanness here that we see in this humble prophet. A humanness that should comfort and instruct our minds and hearts and should comfort us only because we need to realize we're human too. And too often we think, well, you know, Peter and Paul, they're written in the annals of the scriptures. David is also great King David, great shepherd of God's sheep, who fell greatly, didn't he, in his humanness. But the great thing about David is that throughout all of his life, and God mentions it time and again, He says, but David never bowed his knee to another idol or to an idol or to another God. David sinned and David received God's forgiveness and David dealt with the consequences of his sin, which eventually would take all of Israel after his son Solomon down. But he stayed faithful to the Lord. He was human. He made his mistakes. And Jeremiah's humility here serves as a, as a tremendous contrast to the guilt of Judah. I can't say innocence, even though there is a sense of innocence here. When he says, heal me and I will be healed. Save me and I shall be saved. 
after having said, my wound is incurable. Doesn't it comfort you to know that the characters of God's word have been there before us and they've experienced that pain, but they also know the victory of God's deliverance and of God's salvation. And then verse 15 that reveals the, the mockery of the people toward Jer- uh, Jeremiah for the, for the very things that he prophesied for God. They were ridiculing God's word and they were ridiculing God's prophet. They were saying, where is the word of the Lord? Let it come now. See, understand the question. Where is the word of the Lord? Where is it? You keep saying the word of the Lord this and thus saith the Lord that, but where is it? What was the word of the Lord for them then? It was the warnings of judgment. The warnings of judgment uh, were, were that, he, that God was coming in, in the sense of bringing judgment upon His people through the Babylonians. We've seen that from Jer- Jeremiah chapter 1 to where we are today. And the time is getting closer and closer. There was a time when He was 40 years out. There was a time when it was 30 and 20 years out. And just recently, it was 10 years away from this happening. Now it's even closer than that. And they're saying, but where is the word of the Lord? Listen, our prophets are telling us everything's cool. Everything's peaceful. Everything's going to be fine. So if you've got the word, let it come now. We want to see it now. They're mocking. They're mocking God. They're mocking God's word. They're mocking God's prophet. But did they know what they were asking for? Did they really know what they were asking for? Turn to Isaiah chapter 5. Turn to Isaiah chapter 5. Because Isaiah has to deal with this same attitude, this same kind of mocking. Verse 18 of Isaiah 5. Woe to those who draw iniquity with cords of vanity. In this particular sense, not only vanity in the sense of worthlessness, but vanity in the sense of pride. You're so vain. You're so vain. You think this song's about you, don't you? (laughs) All right, I'm glad you're awake. (laughs) Woe to those who draw iniquity with cords of vanity and sin as if with a cart rope. That say, let him make speed and hasten his work that we may see it. And let the counsel of the Holy One of Israel draw near and come, that we may know it. This is mockery, folks. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil. Who put darkness for light and light for darkness. I'm, 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 I'm just so amazed at how people th- see things today. Today, people in the world are into antiheroes, not real heroes with some kind of godly or righteous desire for good to reign. We have to have Hellboy now. Do you understand what I'm saying? We have to go to antiheroes, you know, to be heroes in the darkness. Because that's really the world, isn't it? They've rejected the true hero. They rejected the true creator of the heavens and the earth. They rejected the true one who has died for the sins of all. 
men and the sins of all men in the sense that those who will believe, of course, that he died for them will be saved. And I, and I think about all of the, the talk, you know, hey man, that's bad. I know I go through this again. That's bad. Was it bad? No. Well, it means good. Well, then say good. Yeah, but we say bad. Yeah, but I take him to the scripture. Man, don't do that. Why? Because it says to those, woe to those who call evil good and good evil. Let your yes be a yes and let your no be a no. You understand? God wants us to speak truth and love. People put light for darkness and darkness for light today. So there has to, see in their mind, they're saying there has to be some good in darkness. But that's the lie of the devil. Because in the devil there is no good. And besides, when we were living without Christ, what did it say about us? There is none that doeth good, no, not one. All have sinned. All have fallen short of the glory of God. That's why we need a Savior. That's why we need Jesus. Who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and prudent in their own sight. We could go on and on and on with what Isaiah was saying. But turn now to Amos chapter 5 verse 18. How interesting that the numbers coincide. Isaiah 5.18, turn to Amos 5.18. And listen to what Amos says. He says, Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. The desire in itself is, is somewhat the mockery, which is let it happen now. You know, if you're saying it's going to happen, let it happen now. Their understanding, though, the day of the Lord was not one of biblical understanding. It was one of deceptive understanding. Oh, the day of the Lord ought to be good. But God's word says that the day of the Lord is not. And notice, woe to those who desire the day of the Lord. For what good is the day of the Lord to you? It will be darkness and not light. I've done a study on the day of the Lord and, and, you know, somewhere in the archives it's there. But one day I'll do it again. I think it's important for us to understand the phrase the day of the Lord in the scriptures. Second Peter, let's go to the New Testament now. Second Peter chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. Second Peter chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. Beloved, I, I now write to you this second epistle, in both of which I stir up your pure minds by way of reminder, that you may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets, Jeremiah, of course, being one of them, and of the commandment of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior, knowing this first, that scoffers or mockers will come in the last day. Scoffers or mockers will come in the last day, walking according to their own lusts. Now there's the key. They're mocking the things of God and the word of God and the prophets of God. They're mocking them because they are walking according to their own lusts and their own desires. So they don't want to hear that the day of the Lord is a, is a bad day. They, they want to change the rules, so to speak. Change the scenario. 
and saying, where is the promise of his coming? Where is the promise? You see, even in Peter's time, they, they were saying what I'm saying to you. Jesus is coming soon. And they mocked and they said, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. Nothing's changed. And if it's changed, it's only changed for the better. Man's getting better. Man's getting more technologic, technologically advanced. He's getting, you know, more sophisticated in his ways. It seems to me that the more technological we become and the more sophisticated we become, the more sinners we become. That's not to say that we don't take some of that technology and use it for the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We have. And it's a good thing. But the world in general is not looking at it that way. What do you have to do just to get to a nice, clean website on an internet, but have to go through a lot of junk to get there? Or TV? I gotta share this with you. I was, I, I, I was told about a, you know, some kind of a sci-fi. I like a little sci-fi, you know, from time to time. Well, there's a sci-fi new, new show coming out, and I thought, well, okay, I'll record it because something was happening. Put it on the, you know, the timer just so I could see it later and see if it was any good. And all of a sudden, you know, I, 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 I get to, you know, to watch it. And it's, it's, I mean, from beginning, I just like turned it off. And it was a regular channel, not a cable channel. And I mean, it was explicit and it was, what happened to standards? What happened to standards of morality? Where are they in our country today? Oh no, we're too sophisticated for those standards. But now we're letting our kids see all that. All things are the same. They're, think, they're getting better. There's, there's no Messiah coming. Some people think he's already here. He's no Messiah. Jesus is Messiah. Please understand that. There's only one Messiah, and that's Jesus. So we add to the list of idolatry and unbelief and greed and forsaking the Lord. Now we add another sin, and the sin is the sin of rejecting, the rejecting of God's servant. And in essence, the rejection of God himself. And that's what we've just seen in these first four verses. Spent a lot of time there, but we're going to move on pretty quickly now. From this sin, we move on to the profaning of the Sabbath. And this is what takes up the rest of the chapter. The profaning of the Sabbath. The profaning of the Sabbath, verses 19 all the way to the end, but let's look, let's read verses 19 through 23 first. Thus the Lord said to me, Go and stand in the gate of the children of thy people, or of the people, by which the kings of Judah come in, and by which they go out, and in all the gates of Jerusalem. Now, we're not exactly sure what gate that would be. There's a lot of gates going into the city of Jerusalem, uh, and eventually, of course, it says that in all the gates of Jerusalem is where they go in and out. But he tells them to go to a specific gate of the children of the people. And say to them, hear the word of the Lord. What is he doing? He's presenting a sermon. Now we've already dealt with one of, one of Jeremiah's sermons earlier. 
This is another sermon though. The other sermon was in the temple. This one is at the gates. And he says, Hear the word of the Lord, you kings of Judah and all Judah. So who is the word for? It's for everyone. It's for the kings or the leaders. And it's for the people. So it's for everyone. But he distinguishes them so that they'll know that it's for all the people. And all the inhabitants of Jerusalem will enter by these gates. Whoever comes through these gates, and all the people had to, at any time, a given time of the day or, or, or week or whatever, had to go through these gates. So he's saying to everyone who uses these gates and comes in, Thus saith the Lord, Take heed to yourselves, and bear no burden on the Sabbath day, nor bring it in by the gates of Jerusalem, nor carry a burden out of your houses on the Sabbath day, nor do any work, but hallow the Sabbath day. Hello? No, hallow. In other words, consider holy the Sabbath day. We say the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Holy, and above all, is your name. So, they are to make holy the Sabbath day as I commanded your fathers. But they did not obey nor incline their ear, but made their stiff, or their neck stiff. What does that tell you? Stubbornness. Backsliding. That they might not hear nor receive instruction. Can you imagine that the people of God would become so stiff-necked and stubborn to back away, not even to hear God's Word, nor receive the instruction? I mean, these people were far gone. And that's something that Jeremiah was learning. He kept saying, Lord, you've got to be merciful to these people. And, he's, and the Lord is telling Jeremiah, you've got to understand, Jeremiah... I've been telling them and telling them. Now I'm telling them through you. And now you're realizing they're not even hearing you. So this passage from verse 19 to the very end of the chapter contains this sermon of Jeremiah's, which is a classical Old Testament message in form. Notice that it has an introduction. Hear the word of the Lord. It has an introduction. Secondly, a proclamation of the law. What is the law? Bear no burden on the Sabbath day. Take heed. A promise of a blessing for the obedient and a threat of judgment for those who disobey. That's verses 24 through 27. We'll get there in just a moment. The introduction has the Lord commanding Jeremiah, stationing himself at the gates of Jerusalem where the kings and the people passed by. He was to call them to listen to the Lord's message that he had for them. The Lord had given, that's verses 19 and 20, the Lord had given the Sabbath to the Israelites as a token, a special token, and a gesture of their relationship with Him. It was a special gift given to them. It was a sign that Israel belonged to God. The Sabbath was a gift given to His people as a sign that, it, that Israel belonged to God. You do a very careful study of this and you realize that when it talks about that covenant, it was as a marriage covenant. 
Consider some of these passages dealing with the Sabbath. Exodus 16, verse 29. See, for the Lord has given you the Sabbath. Notice. Given you the Sabbath. It is a gift to them, but it's a very serious gift because you see, therefore, He gives you on the sixth day bread for two days. It's the seventh day upon which you rest, so in the sixth day, you get double provision. Let every man remain in his place. Let no man go out of his place on the seventh day. Exodus 20. The law begins to take even more shape here. Verses 8 through 11. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Exodus 20 is what? It is the giving of the law. So here's the explanation of the fourth commandment. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall do no work. You nor your son nor your daughter nor your male servant nor your female servant nor your cattle nor your strangers within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them and rested the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. He made it holy. So now you see an even greater understanding that the Sabbath was for Israel and God's people to understand their connection to the Creator and their Redeemer. And then in Exodus 31, verses 12 through 17, it says, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak also to the children of Israel, saying, Surely my Sabbaths you shall keep. Notice, not just a Sabbath, but my Sabbaths you shall keep, for it is a sign between me and you throughout your generations, that you may know that I am the Lord who sanctifies you. In other words, I am the Lord who sets you apart from all other nations, from all other races, from all other peoples. I have separated you. What is that saying to you about Sabbath and and Israel? Okay? You shall keep the Sabbath, therefore, for it is holy to you. Everyone who profanes it, notice the seriousness, everyone who profanes it shall surely be put to death. That's how serious God was with his people about the Sabbath. For whoever does any work on it, that person shall be cut off from among his people. Work shall be done for six days, but the seventh is the Sabbath of rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on the Sabbath day, he shall surely be put to death. Therefore the children of Israel shall keep the Sabbath. To observe the Sabbath throughout the generations as a perpetual covenant. There's a lesson in this too. Understand the fear of the Lord. As things began to weaken and, and no longer were they following the law as God had, had, you know, commanded. And then they began to make laws around the laws and, 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 and put barriers around the laws and, and establish uh, uh, different kinds of laws. Then they had to kind of judge as to whether, well, should we stone this or not? Well, and then, then it, just, it just weakened. So the fear of the Lord weakened. But go on and read what it says. Therefore the children of Israel shall keep the Sabbath to observe the Sabbath throughout their generations as a perpetual covenant. It is a sign between me and the children of Israel forever. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth 
And on the seventh day he rested and was refreshed. So understand that it was to be a day of rest for the people, their animals, and the land. They were to refrain from carrying loads in and out of their houses or the city or doing any work whatsoever. Jeremiah is preaching this through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Verses 20 and 20, 21 and 22 of our text. But as we get to verses 23 of our text, or as we get to verse 23 of our text, we see that the forefathers of the children of Judah had not obeyed the Sabbath commandment, but had become stubborn, and they were determined to refuse to listen to the Lord and refuse to take His correction. And so we arrive at the promise and the warning. So it's made very clear. They refused to listen to God. They made their own laws. In verse 24 it says, And it shall be, if you heed me carefully, says the Lord, to bring no burden through the gates of the city on the Sabbath day, but hallow the Sabbath day to do no work in it, then shall enter the gates of his of the city, kings and princes sitting on the throne of David, riding in chariots and on horses, they and their princes, accompanied by the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And this city shall remain forever. And they shall come from the cities of Judah, from the places around Jerusalem, from the land of Benjamin, from the lowland, from the mountains and from the south, bringing burnt offerings and sacrifices, grain offerings and incense, bringing sacrifices of praise to the house of the Lord. We call that worship. That's the promise of blessing if they heed the word of God. But, notice verse 27, But if you will not heed me to hallow the Sabbath day, such as not carrying a burden when entering the gates of Jerusalem on the Sabbath day, then I will kindle a fire in its gates, and it shall devour the palaces of Jerusalem, and it shall not be quenched. And just a few more years, that would take place. That would happen in Jerusalem. And all the land would be laid waste. Now what is God's purpose in the land? It is to give it the rest that they never gave it. Seventy Sabbaths. They let they worked the land. They didn't give it its Sabbath rest. Seventy Sabbaths. Seventy years. How many years would Judah be? in captivity in Babylon. Jeremiah 29 says, 70 years. You see, the promise that the Lord gave was, if the people of Jeremiah's time obeyed the Lord, He would give them more kings and leaders from David's line that would, be, that would abide in Jerusalem and strongly lead the people. The city would then be inhabited by people from all the surrounding areas, that would come to worship there rather than than be a city that would experience a total abandonment of the Lord. As a matter of fact, if you read Isaiah 58, verses 13 and 14, we go back to Isaiah 58, verse 13, it says, If you turn away your foot from the Sabbath, and and that's not to say to turn away from the Sabbath in the sense of against it, but notice the rest of the idea. If you turn... 
away your foot from the Sabbath, from doing your pleasure on my holy day. From the day of Sabbath, on the day of Sabbath, doing your pleasure on my holy day. If you turn away from that and call the Sabbath a delight, if you'll call the Sabbath a delight to you, the holy day of the Lord honorable, and shall honor Him, not doing your own ways, nor finding your own pleasure, nor speaking your own words, then you shall delight yourself in the Lord. And I will cause you to ride on the high hills of the earth and feed you with the heritage of Jacob your father. Again, look at the blessings that come from obedience. The mouth of the Lord has spoken. Look at Zechariah chapter 2 verses 10 through 13. I hope you're writing these down or following me as fast as you can. But Zechariah 2 verses 10 through 13. Sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion. For behold, I am coming and I will dwell in your midst saith the Lord. Many nations shall be joined to the Lord in that day, and they shall become my people, and I will dwell in your midst. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you, and the Lord will take possession of Judah as his inheritance in the Holy Land, and will again choose Jerusalem. Be silent, all flesh, before the Lord, for he is aroused from his holy habitation. When obedience does happen, God takes possession of Judah. Zechariah 8, verse 3 says, Thus saith the Lord, I will return to Zion and dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. Jerusalem shall be called the city of truth, the mountain of the Lord of hosts, the holy mountain. So Judah's security depended on obedience. Judah's security depended on obedience and repentance was still possible. That's why he's preaching the way he is at the gate of the city. If you obey, God will bless you. If you disobey, God will judge you. I think that's pretty simple. I I mean, I don't find that hard to understand. Do what God says, He'll bless you. Go against it, He'll burn you. You get burned. Anybody here like to get burned? I don't like to get burned. I don't like to get close to fire. Well, except when it's really cold. You want to warm up. So keep the Sabbath, and you'll be blessed, and you'll prosper. But violate the Sabbath and you will not prosper. That's the simple message. Besides, as we read in the last verse of this chapter, look at verse 27, or as we read this last verse. It says, But if you will not heed me to hell of the Sabbath day, such as not carrying a burden when entering the gates of Jerusalem on the Sabbath day, then I will kindle a fire in its gates and it shall devour the palaces of Jerusalem and it shall not be quenched. In other words, the fire will burn for a long, long time. You know, I believe it needs to be said that it wasn't just the fourth commandment that the people were responsible to keep. Please understand that. It wasn't just the fourth commandment dealing with the Sabbath of the Lord that they were responsible to keep. And because he could have chosen to preach on any other of the other nine commandments, and he probably did so at other times, because all the commandments were broken, by the way. But the Sabbath commandment had special significance. The Sabbath commandment has special significance because it recognized the Lord God of Israel as creator, 
and it recognized him as Redeemer. And so it witnessed against idolatry. The fourth commandment, thou shalt keep the Sabbath and make it holy, was a commandment that witnessed against idolatry. There's only one God. He worked six days and created all things. On the seventh day, he made it holy. We shall make it holy because he's the creator. We shall make it holy because he is the redeemer of Israel. He's the redeemer of God's people. And it guaranteed rest for the people of God, which they could never obtain from idols. Did they ever have rest with idols? Did the idols ever tell them, listen, I've got a day for you. Folks, they couldn't speak. They had mouths, but they couldn't speak. They had eyes, but they couldn't see. They had ears, but they couldn't hear. Did they have rest from the idols? We've all heard of the, the battle, and we, we studied it a little bit earlier on this year. The battles uh, between Elijah and the prophets of Baal, and the prophets of Jezebel. And Elijah mocked their gods, because they didn't have gods. I mean, what gods did they have? But what were the what were the what were the prophets doing? What were the idol worshippers doing? They were jumping up and down and doing all kinds. That doesn't seem like rest to me. They were jumping here and jumping there, and then they cried out louder. And he says, "You know, maybe God can't hear. Maybe he's deaf, or maybe he's out, you know, in the little boys' room." Because that's what he told them. So they started yelling louder. And what else did they do? They started cutting themselves. Man, there's no rest in that kind of worship. But in one prayer, Elijah called down fire from heaven and destroyed all of the altars and all the water that had been poured up and all the water and the moats that were surrounding the altars that had been built for this very display of God's power. Thou shalt keep the Sabbath. But if you look forward to the time when When Judah returns to the land after being in captivity in Babylon. Now remember, this is why they're in Babylon, because they're learning a lesson for their disobeying God and and not giving the land its Sabbath rest. So they're there 70 years. And when they're finally restored to the land and they come back to the land of Israel, there's a problem still with the Sabbath. We're going to close with this, but turn to Nehemiah chapter 13. Nehemiah chapter 13. How am I doing on time, by the way? Ooh. Got to read fast here. Okay, here we go. Nehemiah 13, verses 15 through 18. In those days, and remember, this is after captivity. In those days I saw people in Judah trading wine presses on the Sabbath. What was that? Work. And bringing in sheaves and loading donkeys with wines, grapes, figs, and all kinds of burdens, which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. And I warned them, notice, about the day on which they were selling provisions. And in his best English, he says, Ain't this the reason why you were in trouble? 
Men of Tyre dwelt there also. Who's the men of Tyre? They're not even Israelites. They're not Jews. Men of Tyre dwelt there also who brought in fish and all kinds of goods and sold them on the Sabbath to the children of Judah and in Jerusalem. And then I contended with the nobles. You ever, were, you ever seen the, the, the show The Contenders? Some of you guys know it. Right? It's about boxing. That's what he's talking about. He went over there and did a couple of right left jabs to these guys. I contended with the nobles of Judah and said to them, What evil thing is this that you do by which you profane the Sabbath day? Did not your fathers do thus? And did not our God bring all this disaster on us and on this city? Yet you bring added wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath. Nehemiah goes on to correct them. But can you imagine? This is the reason why they're in, their, they're in captivity and yet they come back and still do the same thing. Nehemiah knew that one of the reasons for their judgment in Babylon was their neglect of the Sabbath law. And he didn't want to see them go through it again. So he really takes a step and goes after them to correct them. And he does. But consider the qualities. Getting back to the qualities we close here tonight. The qualities I mentioned of godliness that were in Jeremiah were in Nehemiah. In an even greater sense, because we see how he has to take this active or proactive stand for God's word. But we see that in the characters of these two men, Jeremiah and Nehemiah. And I want to remind you of these qualities of his character in the midst of troubles from within and without the camp. Because Nehemiah had troubles within and without the camp as he's building the walls of Jerusalem. When you get a chance, read the book of Nehemiah tonight. Doesn't take that long, or maybe the next couple of days. Wonderful story. But here's the four things that I want you to remember. Because what we saw in Jeremiah, we see in Nehemiah. The Lord was his praise. The Lord was his praise. He followed the Lord with the humble heart of a shepherd. Nehemiah was a man who laid bare his prayers before the Lord, who searched his heart. And his hope was in the Lord. And he trusted in God's deliverance. But he took a stand upon the word of God. And he said, I'm not, let you, I'm not going to let you go through what you went through already. Don't profane God's word. Don't disobey what God has called you to do. And so we come to the end of chapter 17. And we look forward to 18 as we once again deal with the potter, and the clay. Let's pray.